1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and that he appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. This is the word of God. Heavenly Father, may you be glorified in all that is said and done, and may all hear and know the gospel of Jesus Christ, in whose name I pray. Amen. Karl Barth, one of our era's greatest theologians, proclaims that 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is the central tenet of not only 1 Corinthians, but all of Paul's epistles. The reason that this chapter is so important is that it makes explicitly clear it makes explicitly clear that Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead. And this statement that Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead is paramount to the gospel. In a time when science and technology are worshipped and faith in the divine is ridiculed, a message about the resurrection of the dead cannot be heard enough. The gospel and all of Christianity depend on this fact. Christ Jesus died for our sins, was buried, and was raised on the third day, all according to scripture. This is the gospel, and you must know it and believe it in order to be saved. In the first verse, Paul writes to the Christians in Corinth that he desires to make the gospel known. The Greek word used here carries a much stronger tone than to simply, simply remind. Paul is making absolutely clear <clears throat> that there can be no compromise on this issue. Listen to the tone and repetition in this verse. This is the gospel which I preach to you, which you have received, in which you stand, by which you are saved. It appears that Paul is rebuking the Corinthian church for not understanding the gospel. And this aspect of the gospel is so incredibly important that Paul cannot allow the Corinthian church or anyone else to mistake it. All of Christianity depends on this gospel. In verse 2, Paul states that it is the gospel by which you are saved. But hear the caveat in this verse. In verse 2, salvation is conditional not just on committed faith in the gospel, but also faith in this specific gospel. In other words, before you can believe in the gospel, you must first know what the gospel is. I often read news articles online. I used to read them in, in a regular paper form, newspaper. I love to read the news. But now I often find it more interesting to read the online comments to the article, more than perhaps the article itself. 
you know, does anyone else do this? I, I love to read the discussion about the article or the topic. And when I come across an article that deals with Christianity, which is often negative, I frequently come across a condescending comment such as, if Christians acted more like Jesus, they would be so much better. Or, I really like the teachings of Jesus, but I don't really like Christians or organized religion. And, you know, these imply that a Christian is merely a person who performs the teachings of Jesus. While this is one aspect of Christianity, it is not what makes a person a Christian. To the uninformed, Christianity may appear to be an organized religion based on rules and good deeds. And if this is what Christianity only was, it would be a horrible failure. But here in chapter 15, we learn that a Christian is one who believes that the gospel is true. As a Christian, I will never profess to behave like Jesus did. I will not stake my life on a claim that I follow the teachings of Jesus, although I do try to follow the teachings of Jesus. This is not my Christian testimony, nor would I die for this statement. As a Christian, I profess that Christ Jesus died for my sins. Christ Jesus died for my sins, was buried, and was raised from the dead. I give all that I am to this confession. This is the gospel that I would die for. And this is the gospel that will save me. So what exactly is this gospel which Paul is referring to and explaining in these verses? In verses 3 and 4, Paul spells it out in no uncertain terms. Follow along as I read these verses again. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. Here we clearly see three specific aspects to the gospel. Christ Jesus died for our sins. Christ Jesus was buried. Christ Jesus was resurrected. This is the gospel that you must know and believe in order to be saved. Christ died, was buried, and was resurrected. How do we know that these are the specific elements of the gospel to which Paul is referring? First, look at the beginning of verse 3, where Paul introduces the gospel. Here, Paul tells the Corinthian church that that this gospel is of first importance. Second, Paul also says that this is the gospel that he received and is delivering. This gospel is not something that Paul made up. This is not something that Paul derived from his own study. Paul is not the author of this gospel. This gospel was given to Paul, who gave it to the Corinthian church and thereby to us. Third, notice the grammatical bookends around these elements. They're bookended by the phrase, according to the scriptures. By repeating the phrase, according to the scriptures, Paul frames the essence of the gospel to emphasize that this gospel is the culmination and fulfillment of all scripture. The ultimate author of this gospel is God. When read all together, 
Paul is saying that this gospel message is foundational to the Christian faith. The vocabulary used here suggests that it is to be considered a time-honored creed that is passed down from generation to generation. Verses 3 and 4 provide the definition of what a Christian must confess. Arguably, the most famous verse in the Bible is John 3.16. I'm sure all of you are reciting this verse in your head right now. And now, I'm not taking anything away from John 3.16. It is a wonderful verse in its own right. And no verse by itself should ever be held more important than any other. All of Scripture is God-breathed and holy. What I am saying is that if John 3.16 is read in isolation... The reader does not know what about Jesus to believe. John 3.16 just tells the reader to believe in him. From now on, I pray that John 3.16 will be paired with, at the very least, 1 Corinthians 15.3-4. What must one believe in order to not perish and have eternal life? Paul clearly states that one must believe that Christ Jesus died for our sins, was buried for three days, and was resurrected. This is what Paul is referring to in verses 1 and 2 when he says, the gospel in which you stand and by which you are saved. There's a famous quote that says, unless you stand for something, you will fall for anything. This illustrates well the need for a creed such as this. There may be a great many things about Jesus that we can put our faith in. But the absolute essential thing about Jesus, in which we must have faith, is that Jesus died, was buried, and was resurrected. The gospel states that Christ Jesus died for our sins. Sin is disobedience against God. In Hebrew, the word literally means to miss the mark. God is perfectly holy. Whenever you or I miss this mark of perfect holiness, we have sinned. The Bible states in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.26 states that the consequence of sin is death. Therefore, the first part of this gospel is that Christ Jesus died in our place. It was you and I that should have been on that cross where Jesus died. The gospel, however, is that Christ Jesus sacrificed himself for us. Christ Jesus physically died. He did not go to sleep. He was not unconscious to be resuscitated. Jesus died. How do we know this? The Bible states in Mark 15 that Jesus died on a cross and breathed his last breath. After Jesus had died, his body was wrapped and placed in a tomb cut out of rock. And a large stone was rolled over the entrance of this tomb. And the body of Jesus lay in this tomb for three days. There is no mistaking this point. Jesus died. The gospel, however, states that Jesus was resurrected. And Paul wants to ensure that his readers fully receive this point. Jesus physically died and then came back to life. This was not an illusion. Jesus was resurrected. Verses 5 through 8 provide the eyewitness accounts of those to whom Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, appeared. To Peter, to Jesus' apostles, to more than 500 Christian brothers, 
to James, to the other apostles, and to Paul. Notice the detail in verse 6. Most of the Christian brothers who witnessed the resurrected Jesus were still alive at the time of this writing. In ancient historiography, Jesus, Paul is making this case for a historical fact. The resurrection is not a metaphor or a parable. It is a fact that can be researched and verified. This is the gospel in which we must put our faith in in order to be saved from death. Christ died for our sins, according to the scripture. He was buried and he was resurrected on the third day, according to the scriptures. Belief in this gospel is what defines a Christian. And by the grace of God, this is what saves a person from the penalty of sin. And when I was in elementary school, I was presented with a question. If you were to die today, would you be in heaven or hell? Needless to say, this question terrified me. And I was, you know, I was nurtured in one of the best Christian environments one could ever hope for. Yet I was haunted by this question for years. How do I know I really am a Christian? When I was a child, I prayed the sinner's prayer many times. And I went forward to dedicate my life at many altar calls. But, you know, within a few days, I would lay awake at night and wonder, if I did die tonight, where would I go? It was like this for many years. I was afraid to die. I was afraid of having my loved ones die. But then in my 20s, I started to seriously contemplate my life. I would think, what is so great about my life that I'm afraid of losing it? And this led me to seriously contemplate, what is the meaning of life? Why am I here? And this led me to seek the meaning of life from a variety of sources, one of which was the Bible. And of all the sources of information, the Bible is the only one that grabbed my heart and rang true. And this led me to evaluate my life in comparison to other Christians. My mom, my dad, my grandmother, my younger brother, international missionaries, students who were seeking their second PhD, my pastor at the time. And from the testimonies of their faith in the gospel, I too believed in the gospel. Two years ago, my mom, who appeared to be perfectly healthy, came face to face with the reality of death. She was diagnosed with stage 4 lung cancer and was given a prognosis of six months. It was for me the biggest tragedy and test of my faith to date. And after I got the call that night from my mom, I screamed out loud till my throat was dry. I said, God, where are you? Why did you do this? And do you know how God answered me? God drew me to 1 Corinthians 15. The word of God comforted me. Comforted me with this phrase. The resurrection is true. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? Praise God that his strength and power fills my mom to this very day. She would be the first one to give all glory to God. And regardless of the circumstances, cancer or no cancer, her faith in the gospel of Christ Jesus is a magnificent testimony indeed. 
And you know, death is still an abomination and painful. Death is not as God intended. But death, however, is not as terrifying to me as it once was. My mom, my family, and I testify to the power and comfort that comes from believing in the resurrection of Christ Jesus. And because of the resurrection of Christ Jesus and through the grace of God, we have eternal hope that there is hope after death. Dear Heavenly Father, I declare that you alone are God, Lord of heaven and earth. Thank you, Christ Jesus, for dying for our sins. And by the power of your resurrection, I proclaim hope everlasting in you. I pray that all who need this hope receive your grace and blessed assurance through the Holy Spirit that comes from an eternal relationship with you. It is in the mighty name of Christ Jesus that I pray. Amen.